Why? Indigenous Words and Ideas with Arcia Tekun. Baskewailik, Henner, bienvenidos, welcome. Uh, it's good to have you on. Henner, I'll, I'll let you introduce yourself. Yeah, but you're both catch Daniel, Hachikima Gimwal, Tian and Bailata Wetel, Tialin Sigwatik, eat your Helas, Helas, Helas Balo. Tene Kawai, Heldian Sortis, Quintati Ulumil Yucatan, Tuno Lumil Mexico, Yete Tani Mayaktik to Tunahil Kanashok Bishops, Tuno Lumil Canada. ¿Qué tal? Oh, I was using Spanish, but yeah, I can switch to English. Uh, hi, um, Daniel. Uh, you know, it's great to be here with you uh, to, to talk a little bit about, about different things. And um, uh, yeah, my name is Henry Dianes Ortiz. I'm uh, a Maya from the state of Yucatan in Mexico, and, uh, and I'm currently working as a professor in the university, uh, in a university in Canada that's called uh, Bishop's University, which is located in the traditional and unceded territory of the Abenaki people. Grateful to have Henner on. One other thing that he didn't mention in his introduction is he he also suffers, um, as I do, from a, a disease we were joking about, which is called anthropology. <laughs> so, Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> wondering if you could give a little bit of background of how you got into anthropology, maybe, and, and some of the work that you do um, as a Yucatec Maya uh, and as an anthropologist. Yeah. So I uh, I contracted the disease of anthropology very very early uh, you know when I was young I think that uh, you know some other disciplines were the gateway to to my interest in anthropology um, I did my first degree in uh, Mexico in my my home state uh, the Yucatan and um, yeah so that was my bachelor degree and then I uh, later went on to doing anthropology of development in uh, University of Sussex in the UK. And uh, I did my PhD there. And I've always been, you know, as, as we were um, joking before, once you contract anthropology, there's no there's no way back, right? And uh, yeah, you, you you start as an anthropologist and then you, you um, unconsciously always look at things uh, with an anthropological uh, lens and um, and that's yeah that's that's been my life in the last uh, 20 odd years. Uh, I was um, as an anthropologist uh, or as a, or as a student of anthropology, I was uh, involved in um, not just research but also uh, practical uh, development um, in in many different ways. I was um, even before I finished my first degree, I was involved in work with um, NGOs in uh, my, my region, in the Yucatan Peninsula, um, and, uh, you know, doing research, intercultural interpretation, um, using um, linguistic concepts to try to understand um, forms of organizing, um, promoting self-determination, and, um, and indigenous rights in, in, in the Yucatan also interested in sustainable development and um, yeah and from there uh, I've been doing 
research in different fields. I've, I've been working with uh, with my farmers. Uh, later uh, in my life, I started working with uh, uh, indigenous artists, not just from um, the Yucatan, but also from other parts in the Americas. And, and even, uh, you know, I, I had the privilege of um, meeting and working together with um, artists from Australia and Aotearoa, New Zealand. Um, yeah, yeah, I had uh, I had a good time. I have to say, this disease is um, you know is a disease that keeps keeps on giving, uh, and you know I'm just glad that yeah, this is what I do, and that um, and that I get to to meet uh, you know great great colleagues and, and relatives like yourself in this in this line of work. Awesome. One of, one of the things that I wanted to have you uh, share a little bit about, which is related to some of what you've mentioned, is uh, you have an article that you wrote called The Cosmopolitan Future. I think that's a great way to start thinking about a little bit about Maya history, you know, some of the, the baggage we regularly have to deal with, you know, as, as being often framed as people who have disappeared and no longer around and all those narratives that we you know, we've had to confront as, as Maya, but, but your, your idea um, of combining that with cosmopolitan and how we're contemporary and maybe we'll start there and we'll get into some more as we go. But well, I guess, where did, how did, you know, you come across this for yourself and, and, you know, what are some of the, I guess, basic ideas around cosmopolitan? Yeah, no, um, no, thank, thanks for the interest in this. So I guess it's a it's been a natural progression of my way of understanding how um, cultural and historical heritage is mobilized politically and um, uh, in different avenues uh, in the Maya region. Um, so as I was saying, uh, even before I finished my first degree, I was involved in different forms of uh, social mobilization in my home region, uh, and you know right at that point I was also made aware that what was happening in the Yucatan was to some extent connected, although very subtly, uh, subtly uh, with, the, um, with what was happening in other parts, uh, not, not only of uh, Mexico, but also the Maya region. So my uh, university years um, happened in the 90s when uh, on both sides of the border, the, um, the national border between Mexico and Guatemala, there were there were very interesting political developments happening. Right on on the side of Mexico, uh, we had the Zapatista uh, rebellion, uh, which triggered a whole process of um, uh, engagement, um, organizing, debate, um, um, clashes over um, issues of uh, human rights and political rights and cultural rights for indigenous peoples in the context of, uh, of, of the nation state, uh, in, in this case of Mexico. On the other side of the border, there was a process to end um, political violence in, uh, in Guatemala. So um, right there in the mid nineties, uh, you know, many of these conversations that led eventually to the signing of the peace accords in Guatemala in 1996, which also triggered a whole series of conversations and um, uh, questions about what it meant to be, um, or, or rather the way the uh, Guatemalan society was organized 
and uh, forms of uh, social and cultural exclusion uh, in a country that is predominantly uh, indigenous, right? So where, where indigenous people uh, represent more than 50% of, uh, of the population, you know, according to however you want to um, uh, measure in, in indigenousness in that context. But uh, so <clears throat> um, my the years leading to my to me obtaining my first degree uh, already had many of these conversations in motion, and uh, I don't know these um, cross-border uh, interactions and um, Guatemalan Maya activists coming sometimes to the Yucatan to share um, their experiences. There was uh, constant um, uh, mutual learning processes, for instance, in terms of linguistic revitalization. Uh, my home region, uh, the Yucatan, is home to approximately 800,000, uh, 1 million speakers of uh, Maya Tan. Uh, which is also known as Yucatec Maya. Um, and, and in spite of the relative strength of, uh, of the language, there, are, there, there is already a, um, um, a process of displacement that made a lot of uh, Maya and non-Maya researchers interested in what was going on in other parts of the region, right? So, and, and that's when uh, conversations about language revitalization, uh, the um, setting up of institutions like the Academy of Maya Languages uh, of Guatemala, and, and some of these um, uh, exchanges uh, took place. So, all, all in all, um, you know, there was um, there was a keen interest in exploring these questions about what indigenous cultural heritage um, could be or represent in, in political in political undertakings, in political mobilizations. And, and all of that combined, of course, with, uh, with culture, with um, uh, spirituality, with um, discussions about uh, rights, um, you know, the, the extent to which rights uh, had to uh, accommodate um, uh, um, Maya, uh, cosmological principles and so on and so forth. So um, when when I finished my my first degree, I I was still working on the on the impression that many of these um, uh, conversations were very marginal, and 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 in fact um, needed to be locally translated in order to to, to be implemented. But as I continued um, working together with different uh, Maya actors, both in Mexico and, and also across the border, um, uh, I had the opportunity to work in, for instance, with uh, Maya activists in uh, the south of Belize and, uh, and realized that, you know, they were also uh, a part of these transnational conversations and uh, learning from the Guatemalans, learning from the Mexicans, uh, you know, uh, in, in this um, nationalistic sort of way of framing uh, um, Maya culture and heritage, um, and at the same time trying to break those barriers to to create um, you know, a transnational Maya circuit of learning and political uh, exchanges. So given all of these contexts, which is really... You know, it, it, it's nothing but disorganized and uh, incidental, uh, but that made me realize the extent to which, on the one hand, uh, Maya, especially the younger generation of Maya people, 
uh, who have had access to different political ways of thinking and, and developments as well. Uh, the, the acknowledgement of new rights during the last decades of the 20th century in the beginning of, 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 of this century. Uh, a lot of them had started to experiment and to feel more confident with, uh, with crossing these borders and also became more interested in what was happening on the other side of the national frontier and um, um, and, and the um, with the um, with increasing access to the internet and um, social media and um, um, the circulation of music and uh, films and um, many other cultural products across uh, the internet, all of that has, in my view, um, generated uh, an interesting substrate of um, ways of understanding what it means to be Maya in the 21st century. And that's what I call uh, cosmopolitanism. Uh, on the understanding that the Maya have always been cosmopolitan. Maya in different parts of the, um, of the region have always been open to um, external influences. Um, in Guatemala, for instance, uh, you know, we, we have had this conversation about how Maya music has um, in many ways incorporated in an instrument that is originally from Africa, right? Uh, which is the, the marimba of the uh, xylophone. But, but this is how cosmopolitan Maya culture has been for centuries and, and not just because of uh, colonization, but centuries before there were exchanges with um, with people in what is today the Southwest United States and, and all the way uh, south to uh, the coast um, of what is today Colombia and so on. So recognizing that cosmopolitanism has always been part of um, uh, the lives of different Maya peoples. Um, what I wanted to say with the coining of this term cosmopolitanism is that what I see as um, um, different in this new incarnation of Maya cosmopolitanism is that the idea of Mayanese is at the very center of, of, this, of this form of engagement. So that um, young people in Guatemala, in Mexico, in Belize are engaging with the world, so to speak, but while centering and uh, constantly reformulating their Maya identities in, uh, in a transnational key, so to speak, right? So they are exploring their identities in conversation within the diversity of Maya languages and traditions and forms of identity that exist within the region. And at the same time, they're opening from that vantage point, they're opening themselves up to um, global influences in music, in politics, in film, in um, uh, academia uh, and, and other intellectual uh, uh, projects. So, so that's that's a little bit of what um, what, what I think. You know, if anything uh, defines, in my eyes, um, uh, this cosmopolitan 
uh, moment, so to speak, that I hope will will take um, will take root and, and and lead us to 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 different futures. Man, there's so much in there that that's it's so great, and I, I think one of the points that you bring up that you know it's not a new phenomenon, but but there's uh, perhaps new expressions and new contexts that are being incorporated into this kind of uh, belonging to many worlds or engaging with the world or to, in many worlds. Um, and as you were saying, it was kind of reminding me some other things that I remember first encountering in my early days of anthropology was like the ball courts and, and or, you know, whether it's chak chai or pok tapok or um, the different words that it's, they're known by. Um, and then discovering that there was ball courts in the Southwest and in the Caribbean and in the northern parts of Abiyala or South America. And I was like, oh, wow. Like, so we're bringing in things from all over. But at the same time, we're influencing all these other regions and places as well, anciently. And then today, that hasn't, that I guess that spirit, that principle hasn't changed, even though the context have, such as you mentioned with the different nation states. And so I'm wondering, maybe it would be worth going back in time a little bit we're saying Mayanness now is the center uh, and it's being reformulated and recreated. When we look at, you know, in the past, we might have affiliated more with an independent city-state, for example, and we, we were as a cultural region across Yucatan, Guatemala, Belize, parts of Honduras, perhaps parts of El Salvador as well, as far as those, but those are modern nation-states, right? So from in your experience or in research, how did we become Maya in a in a sense? Yeah, no, that's that's a great question. And uh, just, just to clarify, I think that you know, uh, when I talk about cosmopolitanism, uh, and I talk about you know how in this um, relatively recent form of uh, Maya cosmopolitanism, Mayanness is at the center. I'm in no way um, presuming that there is something. Um, a tangible um, or something uh, quintessentially Maya uh, that predates our uh, engagement with uh, with that very notion, right? Um, as you said, um, there are different there are different forms of understanding uh, this tension in uh, the creation and recreation of the idea of uh, the Maya, in you know, with uh, uh, with capital letters, and then goes necessarily through the um, uh, systematic or sometimes um, incidental comparison between our commonalities and our differences, right? So, you know, if we, if we were to meet, uh, I, I remember some of my first insights in this idea of Mayanese as something that uh, was to be rediscovered or was to be reconstructed um, started when uh, when I um, you know even as a, as a as a university student started traveling to places like Chiapas, right? And and then in Chiapas encountering these uh, very different people that uh, uh, spoke a very different language to my own, to the language of my parents and my grandparents, and that at the same time had the same a, a similar reverence for uh, a ceremony and ritual. And, um, and and then when we compared 
when we started comparing uh, words, you know, the words that we had for important um, uh, um, resources that we use in, in everyday life, uh, um, animals, plants, ingredients that we use in, in, in ceremony and so on, then you realize, oh, there's, there's a very strong connection here. There's a, there's, a, there's a commonality that opens up to having conversations that can be meaningful, can, can lead to shedding new lights uh, on the past. And I think that it's, it's in that sort of um, interface or tension or, you know, um, or, or as some anthropologists, our, our own colleagues um, like to call it in that sort of constructivist process of uh, rediscovery that minus um, happens and flows and, and, and take place. You know, it, it's in those conversations that minus actually uh, exists. I know to presume that, you know, as, as we both know as anthropologists and also as my uh, people in the diaspora, internally, our own regions are incredibly diverse, uh, either because of processes of colonization, but also the uh, creation of the nation states. And perhaps they, were, they have always been uh, diverse. And, and that's perhaps some of the um, important explanations for the longevity of many of these cosmological principles, ways of understanding the world, you know, ways of looking at, uh, at, at the, the environment and, you know, uh, connecting with, uh, with the ancestral history of the land. Um, so uh, it's in the, again, it's, it's in the process of um, um, suddenly asking questions about why are we so similar and at the same time so different that uh, we uh, begin to um, um, reconstruct those um, lines of um, heritage transmission that uh, on the one hand could maybe help us um, uh, make sense of um, uh, why we are in the region and why um, our vocabulary um, linguistic and cultural is so um, seems so attached to to, to the land and lend it lend its lends itself so um, easily to um, discover unusual and unexpected reaches in uh, in, in in some of the um, aspects of um, culture time. Um, uh, landscape, among other things, right? So, so there's a uh, there's a strong connection that only begins to be discovered when we when we ask those questions, um, both from within and without. Um, so, I guess you know, uh, my understanding of uh, Mayanese and how how we have come to define this is inevitably linked to um, these experiences of uh, intercultural and, in and intracultural encounters that have become more and more uh, frequent. And that, uh, you know, even during the times of the pandemic, they continue to happen. And, and you know, and, and if anything, uh, the internet and social media have only uh, helped all of these exchanges happen in, in you know, at a quicker, our, uh, at a quicker speed, um, but yeah, I think that you know we're still 
I, I guess one, one of the main points is that's, that there's no Mayanes that exists only in the present. Um, but at the same time, without the present, we wouldn't be talking about Mayanes, if that makes sense, right? So it's only when we position ourselves in the present and in the commonalities and uh, uh, differences in, in our experiences as Maya peoples, you know, what, what, what it has been, what has become known as the Maya peoples, that we then can perhaps start recognizing the past, uh, you know, sort of um, uh, seeing new um, uh, hitherto um, dark corners of, um, of the history of, of, of the land. And, and we're still, you know, uh, the feeling that I that I have is that we're, you know, every discovery, every stone that is turned, um, and you know, the 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 information or the resources that are constantly resurfacing, uh, add to that complexity, a complexity that uh, perhaps also shows us that there, there are there are new ways of understanding diversity in unity that we can start finding in the past, if that makes sense, right? So, yeah. so the new, it's about the newness of the past. Yeah, no, I love that. And I think in that sense, right, like the Cosmopolitan applies as much to us as Maya or Maya as, as much as, you know, within our, our close relations as a, as a regional kind of cultural group, as well as with the bigger world, even beyond that. Um, Absolutely. I, you know, yeah, and, yeah. I, and I think, um, you know, on, on that, like one of the other things that I was really hoping to um, talk to you about as well is because you're going to have more insights on some of these nuances than me was uh, in that light, right? Now, you know, I feel like pop culture has represented Maya in so many different ways. And personally, the whole 2012 uh, stuff put out that idea and pop culture of the end of the world in a, in a, in a very kind of modern Western interpretation. And then there's a whole movie called 2012. And then we have Apocalypto as well with Mel Gibson. And there's all, I mean, aesthetically, there might've been some things there that are great. And, but then not, you know, uh, storyline, um, a lot of still kind of colonial narrative around there. So in pop culture, it's, it's, you know, we're there, but we're either in the past or disappeared or, you know, typical of other indigenous peoples as well, right? Indigenous peoples are always dying and disappearing and, and doomed to, to not survive. And yet somehow we're still, still here constantly. And this recent film, the sequel to Black Panther with Wakanda Forever, um, I remember looking at some of the reviews uh, and I, and I, and for some reason I, I, was under the impression that it was going to be like Mexica. And maybe that's because Tenoch is the, the actor who's Nahuatl. Um, but then when I started, wa I, I went into the cinema and watched watched it with my kids. And all of a sudden they're looking at me like, Dad, is that us? And I was like, yes, and and kind of. <laughs> yes, as Maya. But then I was like, oh, but this is Yucatan. This is uh, Lowland. And, you know, my, uh, you know, Nantat being particularly out of the highlands, I could see that familiarity in the aesthetics and the hieroglyphs and the Cosmovision Maya, but then there were so many things that were so coastal. And, and I was thinking about, you know, conversations we've had about cenotes and all these different, you know, how place is so central. And so on one hand, we were super excited because we were like, wow, 
here is a new representation of Mayab, and it's not stuck in the past. And um, it's, it's got that futuristic aesthetic as much as the ancient. So it's playing with time. Um, but then because it's, I believe they were speaking Maya Yucateco. Is that, is that right? And yep, so yeah, yeah, that's what they speak. Yeah. Yeah. Turning it over to you because I was like, oh, I've got, you know, I was just curious what your thoughts are with the film, especially considering the history of representation and your ideas around cosmopolitan futures. Um, what your, I guess, initial thoughts were and, and some things that maybe people should look out for as, as they're watching it. Yeah, no, that's, uh, no, it's been, it's been an interesting moment, I have to say, you know, when, uh, when the movie came out, um, it, it, it triggered um, a whole new exchange in uh, the um, um, circles of Mayatan um, speakers that, um, that I'm a part of, right? And, and, and also because, um, uh, as you said, it's um, it's a new portrayal. It's, it's an it's a it's a very how do you say free um, interpretation or reinterpretation of what it means to be Maya in the 21st century. Uh, so I was actually quite excited, you know, what what um, you know how the culture was going to be represented, how it was going to be uh, captured in um, in this film, and uh, and and and. You know my um, my impressions are mixed, and um, I think that uh, the film is not about uh, the Maya. Uh, clearly, uh, it, it's still very much Afrocentric, which is which is totally fine. Uh, it's uh, you know the uh, the the main storyline continues to be Wakanda, and uh, and and because that's the main storyline, uh, it feels like um, the development of um, Talokan or Talokan um, as a modernistic Mesoamerican society um, uh, on the water was left, um, you know, uh, or, or, or didn't develop uh, fully. Uh, it, was, it was left marginal to the, to the main storyline. But interesting uh, elements that were there, uh, such as the, um, the presence of glyphs, uh, the continuation of glyphic writing, uh, which, which is, you know, uh, interesting because it um, it challenges the um, the common assumption that my writing simply disappeared because, you know, people stopped writing, uh, uh, stopped using that form of writing uh, out of practicality, which was never the case. Uh, we know that um, colonization was very. Um, systematic in the eradication of this form of writing that they perceived as um, uh, diabolical. Um, uh, so, you know, finding that a modernistic Mesoamerican society will continue using uh, hieroglyphs and, and writing with that, that's that's exciting. I think that uh, for a lot of people with whom I have been working uh, or having conversation for uh, conversations for some time, that that's going to uh, that's the that's that's an opportunity they're gonna they're gonna be using uh, sort of exploiting to get more and more um, uh, people interested in in learning about this writing, uh, which which we can now use uh, you know in, in many different ways. There's also the um, uh, the use of the language and uh, about the language. There's um, uh, there's a lot of conversations. Um, uh, the language is treated quite, from what I remember in the movie, there's only 
one or maybe even, maybe two um, uh, native Maya speakers, na native speakers of Maya Tan in the in the movie, and and this is the the shaman that um, appears in the um, in the flashback story of uh, of Namor. Um, so he's the only native speaker of of Maya, but the other actors, um, many of whom were uh, Mexican, like uh, you, you mentioned Tenoch Huerta, uh, and also uh, Mabel Estrada, uh, they are from Central Mexico and they are not native uh, native speakers, but they did a good job um, of learning the language and they are pretty decent in the way they perform it. As, as you know, as, as you know, um, having grown in uh, families that, uh, you know, preserves the language to, to, to various degrees. Um, there are sounds in different Maya languages that are difficult for non-speakers non and, uh, and, and they did a very good uh, work, including, I was very surprised, you know, one of the best language speakers in that film was actually Lupita Nyong'o, who is not Mesoamerican, but who has a very good command of languages. I mean, she's, she's just such an incredible, uh, you know, incredibly versatile, actress um so the language part is 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 important too because um uh, unlike apocalypto uh, where the language was treated as secondary to the story which was mostly uh, a sensationalist taking on christianity's um uh, salvation uh, nature vis-a-vis uh, uh, the inherent savagery of uh, Mesoamerican societies. Um, in, in this case, the language uh, was used very effectively in uh, conveying complex thoughts, polit political thoughts. You know, uh, there, there are different instances where, um, and, and there are different uses of phrases that are um, coined in, in, in very subtle um, uh, linguistic codes. And that sort of has made a lot of uh, native speakers of Maya and very enthusiastic. There is an, there's an acknowledgement that yes, our language was incorporated in the story, and it was it, it was done, you know, with proper respect, which which didn't feel like that when Apocalypto um, uh, came out, right? And 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 especially, I, I remember one of the one of the things that I felt with Apocalypto is that the performance of Maya, if you remember perhaps some of the details of that production, uh, a lot, um, many of the main uh, characters in Apocalypto were not Mexican, were not uh, uh, Yucatecan, but they were Native American, right? So the Native American actors came with uh, with their own references about indigenous languages. And in some ways it felt like they were trying to uh, speak Maya um, uh, uh, with, with some body language that um, belongs to other more ceremonial performances, right? And uh, so I, I um, listening to to some of these actors, I often felt that their interpretation of um, uh, the Maya language was very guttural. Uh, it, it didn't sound like like Maya because it was coming from from a different performative tradition perhaps uh, i i don't know i mean that's you know uh, I, i've always uh, uh, wondered about uh, what made their performance feel so strange so so not maya um, and, and in the case of this new 
inclusion of the language, um, uh, this um, language coach that they had, uh, who is again the only native speaker um, in in the movie, the the shaman, uh, the, the actor named um, Josue Maichi, uh, he he seems to have had he's he's a trained actor, so he himself is a, a you know a, a performative practice. And at the same time, he was able to train more directly, I guess, because uh, you know, having the use of Spanish, he was able to uh, perhaps have more time uh, with the Mexican actors, you know, um, uh, encourage them to speak the language more nat naturalistically, and 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 that you know uh, comes across in in the film. There there are still you know some uh, for me um, problematic. Um, translations uh, uh, that that were used in, in the film for things like um, sea ship or uh, uh, helicopter or and, and and also some scenes that didn't really work but you know for the most part I think that the language is is, is something interesting and just to finish with this uh, idea about the language I think that um, what I have seen happening in other um, examples of pop culture and science fiction is that uh, people really get um, excited about languages, right? So if people identify with the, with the society, with the nation uh, whose language is being uh, used frequently in many of these products of uh, pop culture, then, you know, they, were, they eventually develop uh, uh, new linguistic communities. That's, you know, what happened, for instance, with uh, Klingon, uh, you know, uh, a made-up language, language that doesn't exist, and yet you have um, more speakers of Klingon in the world that probably many of the my languages in. in uh, it happens also with uh, Elvish uh, in Lord of the Rings. It has happened also with uh, Dothraki in Game of Thrones. Uh, the people who have identified, you not know, found these references in pop culture are significant. They have, it has made them interested in the language and therefore develop as speakers of those languages. So hopefully this will re-encourage some uh, um, people in the Yucatan Peninsula to, to learn the long, uh, to, to relearn the, their own language, right? You know, uh, seeing as how it's been used in, in such a blockbuster uh, globally. Yeah, oh, there was some really, really great points and I won't go watch it again now. What do you think of the film? I mean, what was, yeah. what was your own impression as well, a, as a yeah. Maya? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I think at first I was surprised um, because I was expecting like a Mexica connection. I think I'd read something online. And so I was thinking it was going to be more along the lines of that. And then so I was a, a bit taken back. I wasn't prepared to to see these Maya references. Um, Interesting. And, and so at first I was like, oh, I was kind of surprised at first. And then I was uh, pleasantly surprised. But then I also got a little bit nervous because I guess not so I'm a big fan of Ryan Coogler and I like his politics and I, and I love Black Panther. And 
at the same time, I understand that him and the team are dealing with Marvel, right? And then they're also dealing with Disney, which now owns Marvel. And so, and on top of that, they're dealing with like the canon of Marvel. And so I guess that was kind of where I was seeing some of the uh, early kind of questions that I had were like, all right, how much of, how much of the structure is uh, going to limit the storytelling? And I think the first one was, you know, when I, you know, going back and looking, refreshing a little bit of the comics, right? Like it was uh, at Namor and uh, it was, he was an Atlantean. But of course, because DC has done stuff with Jason Momoa and, uh, and Aquaman. So it was like, I think that influenced, um, all right, we don't want to go that route. And it raised an opportunity. And so on one hand, I'm grateful that, you know, Kugler and the team were like, hey, let's bring in a Mesoamerican tie and connection, especially thinking U.S. politics, uh, which are usually Black and Latinx or Chicanequis, right? They usually don't get as specific. And so then thinking, all right, they're specifically looking at Mesoamerica. And then Maya specifically, I was like, oh, I was pleasantly surprised. But at the same time, I'm like, okay, what are the limits of the canon of Marvel of, you know, what it has to be? And how are they going to fit this, you know, because I think in the comics, he's an antagonist. And so I'm like, that was the other thing I was a little bit nervous. I was like, oh, the last thing I wanted to see was Wakandans and Mesoamericans fighting. I was like, I think we should be teaming up. <laughs> and so towards exactly. the end, right? So spoilers, right? Towards the end, I think it opens up that possibility. And I think uh, considering the limitations, I'm glad that, you know, that I knew they had to deal with some of the Marvel structure and canon. Um, but I'm glad that they kind of moved at, moved through it. And so it was, while there was this conflict between these two different groups of people, um, it opens up this, this collaboration. And, and, and to be fair, I mean, at times there are communities that are put, pitted against each other through colonialism, right? And so I guess the other thing that I was thinking of watching this was I was uh, just excited to see Maya aesthetics um, and to see the futuristic elements, um, but also kind of a little bit worried and i'm glad that you talked about lupita as well because for me i've always i've just claimed her because i know she's got the kenyan background but because she was born in mexico i was like well i'll just we'll take lupita <laughs> i was like oh, I'll count her Absolutely. And, and, and that's my point she demonstrates that uh, she demonstrate demonstrates in this movie that you know just how um how at ease uh, she is in all of these different countries you know speaking very very good spanish Speaking very good Maya in the movie, you know, actually making it look uh, naturalistic. Again, I, I guess that um, uh, going back to the to the values of production, I think that they took time, and that's that's one thing that I would say, um, you know, about the production values of Wakanda Forever. It, it shows that they took time to think about the the story that they were going to present about the uh, Talokan and uh, Namor or Namor. Uh, in in the film, but at the same time, there's you know as, as you said, a, a lot of um, film critics are saying that the film goes too far in terms of trying to integrate all of the different threads of the Mar Marvel Cinematic Universe, right? And, and we know that these movies go forever, and um, so so there are limitations about how how much you can I guess how much you can develop one particular strand of the storyline in film and and that's why you know uh I, there are also some some of my friends uh both from mexico and from um uh, the yucatan who are actually were left uh, uh wanting more you know understanding 
uh, you know, how do you do a milpa uh, underwater, right? I think one of, one, one of the uh, beautiful details of production that I found was, uh, was to, found, to find the, um, the archetypical Maya house inside a cave in that, um, you know, in terrain between what is properly uh, Talocan and the um, and the external world, right? So I, I thought that that was a very beautiful um, visual metaphor. And at the same time, yeah, there are questions about why are the Talocans blue? If, uh, you know, questions related to representation, uh, which was made big in Mexico because Tenoch Huerta is not your your typical Mexican actor, right? Racially speaking, actors and actresses with indigenous uh, features in Mexico continue to be marginalized. They are continued being used as um, pawns in the main stories that are told in cinema, in, in Mexican cinema. They are either uh, criminals or uh, domestic workers or uh, rural workers, always marginal to the to the main uh, stories that are told in film. And the fact that uh, Tenoch Huerta, with his uh, indigenous background and with his uh, also quite vocal role in challenging these uh, racist, marginalizing processes in, in, in the film industry, the fact that he became this uh, incredibly powerful character in globally successful trademark like uh, like marvel that's you know also that's that's been seen as um as the main the main occasion to to celebrate right that, that you know we have as we say probably also in guatemala we say in mexico that we have an indio prieto brown indian guy as the you know such a such a such a powerful and, and complex character but uh, but Tenoch's character in the movie is the only one that has that um, that level of complexity, and that's what you know also leaves us wanting more. You know, wanting to know more about how they live with this technology, what kind of technology they use, other than these uh, water bombs that seem so powerful. You know, how they communicate with the with the whales, and you know, which which seemed as I was watching seemed such a, a Maori. <laughs> a Maori form of technology, right? <laughs> in, in in some ways, yeah. But 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 I see I see that as an opportunity. I don't know who will then eventually pick up that challenge, the challenge of developing further this fiction story with more central Maya or and Mesoamerican elements, but. Uh, if there's ever an interest uh, on the part of Marvel, but um, but I saw that also as a great opportunity to talk about lateral violence in the anti-colonial movement. Also, you know, uh, make a very um, strong critique of colonization in the Americas and especially in the Maya region. You know, some of those scenes where Namor goes back to the land and then discovers, you know, this colonial situations and reacts to that and you know all you know this as you said there's the ryan kugel's politics that is the main subtext of of, of that film and the way uh, the characters develop in in the film and uh, yeah but 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 again you know the main point is that this is not 
a story centered on the Maya or even Mesoamerican culture. And, uh, and, and I had, um, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with, uh, with Grace uh, Dillon, who created, who coined yeah. the term um, indigenous futurisms. And, um, uh, and she said in an interview, in a recent interview, that she doesn't consider Wakanda forever to be part of that field of, um, of indigenous futurisms because it's not created by an indigenous um, person. Whereas on the other hand, um, you have discussions, especially in, in the US, where the Afro-indigenous link cannot be separated, and, you know, especially those who are more progressive in terms of uh, intersectionality, see African stories as indigenous stories of these lands, right? So, you know, that the, um, that the African-American experience in the US as well as in uh, Latin America is an indigenous experience as well. So they, you know, there's, yeah. there's, you know, a little bit of a controversy as to how easy it is to translate one experience into, into another, and you know, yeah, and, and questions about who will be, who could lead such an effort like the one that Ryan Coogler has led within Marvel to tell a story centered in Africa, but now a story centered in Mesoamerica. Yeah. Right. He, he tried and he found very good allies in people like Tenoch and also some people who, uh, you know, are, are, are scholars, Maya scholars. And, um, you know, I, I don't know if I mentioned to you that uh, some of the people with uh, whom I worked on the Maya decolonial atlas were consultants of uh, in the production. Oh, nice. So the same guys, you know, have some sort of participation as consultants. So that's that's one, you know, yeah, one yeah. level of involvement, right? Yeah. So you can be a consultant, but at the end of the day, the decisions are made by by somebody else, right? You know, out of other yeah. considerations. And I think that's the that what I'm always thinking of as well is like, you know, what what are the the limits of the structures? What can we do? And um, I'm grateful that there was an opportunity that it's there and there is because of that global visibility. But like you mentioned, I think that's what, what's always uh, the challenge, right? Is that too much is trying to be forced in. And I see that as a structural issue. So while I'm glad on one hand that there is some that visibility, there's some good consulting that was done at the end of the day, there's these structural issues that are still constantly limiting it. And even when Black Panther came out, I was like, man, I want so much more. Like for me, I saw that as an indigenous story um, but again, coming from the, the politics, once you cross that border, right, indigenous politics change, right, where we're coming from indigenous majority nations, and we're dealing with a lot of Creole um, fusion as well, like in Guatemala, like we mentioned, you know, Marimba, or even Garifuna communities, I mean, we're, we're dealing with indigeneity in very different ways. But then once you cross those borders, the politics and language are, are sometimes rubbing against each other, right, and versus the Caribbean, Central America, other, you know, kind of experiences. I think the only place in the U.S. that I have felt a little bit more of that was when I was in New Orleans one time, and 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 it was fairly recent. I went for a conference, and I wasn't there very long, but it was like I I got that Creole sense of like wow, it felt kind of like Latin America but in English, <laughs> and it was a very eerie experience because I don't usually get because it's there is a very rigid 
um, division, I feel like in the U.S. in North American politic around lines of indigeneity, where like you mentioned, right, there is that stuff. And, and I think whereas in, yeah, I want more. I just want way more because there's, I want more of the African stuff. I want more of the Mesoamerican. I want more of that Creole. Because the other thing that made me think of as well was that we do have these Palenque traditions, right, in these maroon communities that pop up all around the Caribbean coast of Mesoamerica and in the Caribbean themselves of allies between indigenous Africans and local indigenous Mesoamericans who are confronting both uh, different forms of slavery and different forms of colonialism that are colliding uh, in the Americas, um, you know, for now several centuries. So for me, I'm like, oh, I want that, you know? And so, and I want more of the other stuff you're mentioning too, like, yeah, milpa and, you know, you know, let's delve into more of that. So hopefully, I mean, you know, this is us talking and imagining a little bit, right? One thing, one, yeah, one thing that I hope, yeah, one thing that I hope this movie will 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 create is a, you know, as I said, I I see this as an um, you know, as opening a door to imagining other ways of telling Mesoamerican stories, right? And uh, you know, that that step that nobody has taken except the mestizos, right? So. And not even the mestizos. I, I think that you know, if, if I think about science fiction in Mexico, the, um, uh, there has been a few science fiction films in uh, in the history of Mexican cinema that have always been centered on the urban mestizo white sort of Mexican experience, right? And you know, always presuming that this, you know, if there's if there's a science fiction future, that's those are the people who are going to be leading that that uh, future but um so in this case because of the characteristics of uh, marvel you know the marvel universe the uh, creative choices that uh, you know people like ryan coogler uh, and others have made that has opened the the door to imagining some of those um futuristic um, uh, scenarios when where um uh, mesoamerican heritage continues to play uh, the important role that has played for so many centuries in, in, in our lands. And um, so, yeah, hopefully, hopefully more, more indigenous directors would take that as, um, a, as a challenge, as an opportunity. And, uh, you know, uh, in, in, there is also, uh, in thinking about cosmopolitanism, I was also inspired, apart from my experiences uh, in these Pan-Maya circuits, I was also inspired by some uh, some reflections about the late uh, Diane Nelson called Maya hackerism. You know, remember that uh, the famous article of hers called uh, Maya hackers, and um, and and I, you know, this idea of communities, grassroots organizations hacking different systems, uh, you know, has always stayed with me. And I think that um, yeah, that's that's also you know some of the some of the avenues of futures that we can start imagining as uh, as Maya and Mesoamerican peoples. One last thing I will, I will say about uh, about this topic is that I hope that it will also inspire more uh, young Maya and uh, indigenous people to to think about these fictional scenarios, right? Uh, you know about this what if. Yeah. Uh, what if, you know, in, in the case of uh, Wakanda Forever, what if uh, there was a plant that uh, will have cured um, all of these thousands of people that were dying from uh, smallpox and uh, 
all of these diseases that were brought here by the Europeans, and, and that opens the door to alternative futures. And uh, but also, what if uh, we regain control over our territories? You know, what will then happen? What will we be doing differently uh, if we had, you know, autonomy and self-determination? So, and, and to think about that, not just in terms of politics, right? Because there's a lot of of that that um, you know is written down in manifestos and, plan- and pamphlets and you know decla- uh, political declarations and so on. But what if we start telling those stories in film or in uh, graphic novels? or in literature in ways similar to what happens with, um, uh, with the Native American uh, community and or the First Nations in Canada. There's a, there's a lot of those stories that are, taken, that are taking shape over there. So, yeah. Looking at the time, and I know that we can extend time even more as Maya. <laughs> it's a social construct, right? But, but being mindful that we also live in, in those other realms. But um, no, really appreciate uh, all the insights that you've shared. It's great to have you on. Muchísimas gracias. Also, you know, very thankful to you uh, for the opportunity, the, the time that we had uh, to talk, uh, to converse, and, uh, you know, both that, uh, you know, good things happen your way and uh, good days will continue coming for all of us. Mm-hmm.